Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Awesome, folks. Um, we're here for another episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast. I believe this one will be 210 if it ends up falling in line the way I expect it will. So uh, today we have uh, a really exciting guest, in my opinion, uh, Steve. And Steve, tell me if I'm pronouncing your last name properly. Is it Tashian? Am I close? Close. Very close. <laughs> Smash it together. Tashian. Tashian. Okay, Steve Tashian. So. Yeah, so Steve, we've been trying to get you on the show, not not to your fault. We've had some just like recording breaks and things like that since when we sure. first contacted you on Twitter, and uh, we finally have you on here. And I'm excited to kind of talk to you a bit because uh, you know you uh, you're 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 a, a performance director at the Columbus Crew. Still, am I right about that? No, I've moved on now. Now I'm with uh, the U.S. Men's National Team, working within the U.S. Soccer Federation. Okay, cool. So you're moving up in the soccer world. That's <laughs> great. No, I actually got uh, tipped off to you. I think um, you were presenting, I believe it was at the Ohio State University or something that Dr. Bollock had going on over there. Yeah, correct. Um, so I, I had watched one of the video presentations you did and you just had some interesting stuff where I didn't get the, get the impression that you were trying to necessarily kind of shoehorn any one specific approach down down all athletes throats kind of a mindset but you were you had a, a healthy amount of curiosity around just like where is the utilization of maybe a, a diet that had a foundation in uh, high amounts of fat moderate amounts of fat not necessarily at the expense of carbohydrate or going zero carb or even classic ketogenic low carb but just like where are some of the um, imp, or where can we possibly utilize this type of a nutritional approach, even if it's maybe seasonally, um, right. trying to match athletes workload with like their nutrition is always kind of a moving target when you get periodized scheduling, in my opinion. So, mm -hmm. so I think we'd like to get into that a bit, but yeah, if you want to just kind of give our, our audience a bit of a background about you, kind of how you got into sports, like what excites you and kind of how you got to where you are right now. Yeah. Just like, just like everyone else, you know, I think, uh, you know, everyone's career path has a, has a interesting story that's influenced by, you know, starting points and people that you come across um, just by chance as you navigate from one area of your career to another. And I, I think mine's no different. I, I graduated in 2002 as a physical therapist and I'm still a practicing physical therapist now, but the, you know, when I, when I left grad school, my first role was in a facility that um, just launched me into professional sports and performance-based clientele. So um, I, was, I was working within the soccer world pretty much right away, uh, using both my strength and conditioning background um, and my physical therapy background to kind of bridge gaps and, and 
fill holes, but I was just learning throughout that process. I had an affiliation with the LA Galaxy at the time and working with Jim Liston, who's now in Toronto, was, you know, the, the kind of the launching pad for me that uh, that started my path in professional sports. And um, there was some zigs and zags in my own, uh, you know, uh, running my own professional uh, facility uh, in the private sector of physical therapy and sports performance facility before I took my first head role in, in soccer, which was with the Columbus crew my first time around, 2007 to 2009. And that was with Ziggy Schmidt, who, uh, who was at the time uh, had left uh, LA Galaxy and had come to Columbus crew and needed someone to fill that role. And again, it's just the people you know and the pathway. My wife was born in Ohio, so it made sense for us to move here. And then, you know, I started that path as a young performance coach, just learning, making mistakes, um, you know, having some success. And then that took me to the, to the UK. And then um, uh, my time at Everton Football Club, where from 2009 to 2014, um, I had various uh, roles and positions from uh, you know, to associate sports science, to, to lead sports scientists, to, you know, director of in-stage rehab. And uh, that was a place where I think I, I shaped a lot of what would eventually become such a big emphasis on not just the gut and the vital role of nutrition and performance, but then, you know, also the way in which um, we somehow got to our conventional strategies that we use and it just didn't seem right none of that sat well with me as I started to dive deeper into uh, you know the way in which we metabolize macronutrients and the way we the way we perform what we need to perform well and and to um, to really take advantage of the, the way in which nutrition can affect you know energy system metabolism so you know as I came back to the states at the end of 2014 um, I didn't intend to come back to the Columbus crew, but the opportunity presented itself new with new management, new ownership. And uh, I was finally in a position where I knew exactly the way I would do it. If I, if I was, if I had the chance and, and that's what I was given. And we introduced some of the changes we wanted to make club wide. Uh, and one of them was to introduce low carbohydrate strategies. And uh, luckily from the top down, um, it was total commitment from everyone. So um, as I navigated through this process of, of, you know, 15 to 18 years of performance coaching and performance directing, um, you, you start to develop your mastery and, and, and fine tune what it is that makes you authentically you and represents you as a, as a individual. But then you also start to, you know, gain an idea of what your purpose is. And I feel like, um, through it all, I, I ended up really believing in, in the human potential. And I think that's really what this is all about. What was, was there a specific maybe catalyst that got you interested in looking at things through a slightly different lens than maybe some of the conventional nutritional wisdom or conventional kind of protocols that we've seen with sports that involve kind of more of an, I mean, you're in an interesting sport with soccer in that like you kind of have a nice blend of high intensity as all fuzz as all as much so endurance within the framework of a full soccer game, or I'm sure in a lot of your workouts. So is there something that kind of tipped you off that you're like, okay, maybe I need to look at this a little closer or dive into this a little more. Yeah. It started when I was in the UK. Um, we, I was working in 
conjunction with um, Liverpool John Moores University in con, you know based on on a mile location at Everton in Liverpool and we had a, a part-time dietitian sports dietitian named Dr. Don McLaren who was there uh, while I was there that was a great resource um, but then Graham Close was obviously at, at uh, Liverpool John Moores and um, uh, Johnny Morton is there as well and, and there was a good mix of people that I could bounce things off of but what really triggered it was I constantly would come across, you know, these uh, hardworking, dedicated professional athletes who are covering, you know, anywhere between 35 and, 50 and 45 kilometers a week between training and games. And there was certain guys that would have interesting weight issues. There was other guys that despite that level of training and volume, would still come to me and it just expressed an inability to feel like they could finish games really well. Um, a lot of it was blamed on, Oh, that's his muscle fiber type. You know, he's a sprinter. He won't be able to ever be a 90 minute aerobic monster, you know? And I just, just knowing what we know about the ability of the body to adapt, I didn't feel like any of that made any sense whatsoever. And there was a, there was a few individuals that I had in mind, uh, and they were they were working within the under twenty one squad. I might be able to I might be able to work with these guys at the under twenty one the opportunity to do that. And at the same time, I was just really intrigued by by fat metabolism and the benefits of fat metabolism. And, and you said it; it's a very acyclical sport, Zach. But it's still underpinned in so many different ways by the, the athletes aerobic capacity and there was definitely room for us to experiment with what we were doing and how we were doing it to maximize each guy on an individual level and so i started this process of, of periodizing carbohydrates quite a bit and and to be fair all i learned over time was that you you we don't realize how little carbohydrates we need to perform at a really high level in this sport i think it's got its role there's a vital role for carbohydrates in the sport but it's massively overestimated in, in my experience so far. And we started to see big, big changes. The roadblock came when I wanted to introduce this stuff at a senior level. Um, you know, the questions were always asked, who else is doing this? And when my answer was no one, it was like, well, we're not doing it either. There's, there's just too much risk in the Premier League to be, you know, for one reason or another to be relegated to out of the Premier League to the championship is, is hundreds of millions of dollars in lost revenue. And, and that's, it's obviously a big risk, totally understandable, but you know, obviously a big roadblock. And that's where it all started, to be honest. And then when I did come to the Columbus crew, I had done enough work on an individual level with players to know that um, we were onto something and that it needed to be applied on a, on a team level being the kind of trailblazer or the pioneer of something is is oftentimes going to be kind of an uphill battle when you get to that kind of pinnacle of a sport because they've been you know it's established and they, it's like you said there's there's it's not just like you know someone's entertainment at, at on the line at that point there's millions of dollars at stake too so uh people are going to try to probably right. lean on what they've seen work or what everyone else is doing and then you almost need to have someone break through in order to catch on a little bit. And, um, you know, one thing I think would maybe be interesting for the listeners to kind of get an idea of the scope as we kind of jump into this stuff a little bit is just kind of getting a bit of an outline of like, what does a, a soccer player 
uh, kind of full year look like over time? Because I know for, for me, when I kind of explain what I do with my diet, I oftentimes, I think I confuse people if they don't stick around and listen to the whole story because, you know, when I, when I periodize my training, I have these drastically different days during the, during the year. So then my nutrition is going to change along with it. So I think maybe starting with maybe a macro view of a calendar year from like off season, preseason to in season type um, activities within the kind of soccer community. So we can get a little bit of an understanding of kind of what these people are putting their bodies through uh, throughout the year. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge in all of it is just the length of uh, soccer season compared to other sports. Um, if you compare it to the NFL or Major League Baseball, NBA, um, it's the volume that presents an interesting challenge. You're talking, you know, 300 days or so of of day in, day out training and matches that uh, that creates, uh, you know, a massive constraint for us to mitigate. And then on top of that, a lot of these players are international players as well. So not only are they playing with their club teams, but then they're also playing with their national teams and eventually the load and of matches and training really accumulates. So uh, there's a, a longevity and uh, in a, in a duration that needs to be addressed. But from a weekly perspective, uh, you know, these, if you're a starter and you're playing games week in, week out, you know, depending on your position, you're covering right around, you know, 40 K, um, you know, a week. Um, in just total distance. Some guys even reaching 45 plus um, on the rare occasion, there's guys that are, you know, 50 K type guys a week, but that's pretty rare, but that's just from a total distance perspective. And then when you look at the the high intensity activities that are taking place, uh, there's a significant amount of, of high intensity work being done as well. You know, you could be well into the, you know, 3000, 4000 meters of, even higher, if you're like you're a starter, you, know, you could be 5,000 meters of high intensity based movement, whether it be high accelerations, decelerations, or just, you know, runs above, you know, high speed thresholds, you're covering a lot of high intensity activity. And then you stack that up. And you're looking at, you know, 45 weeks of that to, you know, to 48, depending on on the length of your season. Um, that's it's a lot of work and the duration of it and the length of it is, is a big toll on the body. But when you break it down to the week itself, there are days where um, the work that's being done would uh, lend itself to a, a higher, a higher volume of carbohydrates, depending on the day. Usually if you, if you work backwards from a match, we use match day designation. So if the match day is, Saturday, match day minus one is Friday, match day minus two is Thursday, so on and so forth. And somewhere around match day minus four, match day minus three is usually a very big training load uh, for most teams. And then obviously the match day is another large training load. And then there's these undulations before and after those days that gives you a periodized week. Um, I think what, what we tried to address was the fact that you know, we wanted to change a couple of different things. We wanted to increase every player's use of oxygen. We wanted to increase the availability of it. We wanted to increase the, um, the processes and cycles in the body, especially when it comes to recycling of energy metabolism that require oxygen. We want the, we want the benefits of having more oxygen available. So there was a, a huge need for us to address, can we have a greater average 
aerobic capacity than the rest of the teams in the league. We, we felt that was going to be massively advantageous. On top of that, I was really focused on the effects that uh, uh, low carbohydrate strategies would have on just systemic inflammation in general. You know, the, there, there's just a massive amount of stress taking place physically, emotionally, psychologically within any team sport and soccer is no exception. So could we have a massive effect on the stress that the sport has on the player by just decreasing nutrition's contribution to some of that systemic stress? And through the research, we were pretty confident that that was going to be a benefit of, of applying these strategies. But what it ended up doing is, you know, it forced us to almost do the exact opposite of what conventional wisdom tells us on certain days. And that, that part of it was an interesting challenge because you now are dealing with intelligent athletes who have had several different performance coaches before me tell them that method A is the right way to do it. And my method B, in some instances, is telling them to do the exact opposite. So the messaging was really important, Zach, at that point. Having a very clear idea of what we were going to do, why we're going to do it, the benefits that it was going to have, and then giving them a reason why I'm asking them to do something totally different than they've ever done before. And those are the, those are the really important details for this to be sustainable. Because if you don't do that and you don't give the players the why, more often than not, when they hit those stressful times, the carbohydrate withdrawal periods, these very emotionally difficult aspects of becoming fat adapted sometimes um, become too much for them to overcome because they don't know the why. Why am I doing this? Why should I suffer? This doesn't feel like I can perform. This feels like I'm getting worse. So how, why should I believe you? Why should I keep doing this blindly? And that was the important part of it was making sure these detailed pieces of messaging and information were, were done uh, with the right timing so that you could get ahead of the things you knew they were going to go through. And then once you passed it, then you could, you could overcome some obstacles like, you know, working our way through the match day plus one now Sunday and Monday plus one plus two and saying, listen, I know you've been told you have to smash carbohydrates to increase your glycogen stores, but I'm telling you, you don't have to do that. That's only going to make more inflammation and make it more difficult for you to recover between training sessions and games. So we're going to actually incorporate the opposite. We're going to incorporate low carbohydrate strategies for the days following games. We know we're going to be able to create, you know, anabolic states through the amino acid ingestion and the protein ingestion we're taking. That whole adage of you need this influx of high levels of carbohydrates to get the insulin spike you need to create anabolic states. We had done the research. We knew that was just a way for food companies to drive us towards carbohydrate ingestion. But we had to explain it to the players. This is what we really want. We want this spike for this reason, and you don't need this to do it. Because the, the downside of doing it through a carbohydrate strategy is A, B, C, D, E, and F, right? The upside of doing it through our new strategy is A, B, C, D, E, and F. And then all of a sudden, you're educating at the same time. So that was something interesting, you know. We had a very specific strategy following, uh, you know, matches that was very contradictory to what we were told we should be doing. And then we'd go into some of these high intensity training sessions, match day minus fours, match day minus threes. And depending on what we were doing for the day, we would purposely want to be glycogen depleted. We want to continue this 
fat adaptive process. We want to continue to give the body exposure to opportunities to be, you know, fat burners. And that was something that was new. You know, we would, we had a, a system daily where they knew exactly the, the volume of carbohydrates we were going to ingest based on this plus system that we came up plus one, plus two, plus three, uh, a plus being, you know, a serving or so of carbohydrates, 20 grams or so would be a plus one. We would introduce that. So they would know, all right, I'm at breakfast and this is what I'm being told I need to tolerate the training session and get the most out of it. And that's how we started approaching these, these training days. And the communication was so key, Zach daily, they had screens that was giving a multitude of information, technical information, tactical information, performance information. And on those performance slides, they would see breakfast. We want you to have this much lunch. We want you to have this much, so on and so forth. And we tried to communicate daily on a really consistent level so they'd understand what was happening. And then again, once we got past match day minus four, where it's this really high intensity exercise, sometimes requiring a lot of speed volume, we would tailor it. You know, we would bring things up if we thought speed-wise they were going to need it. But then the days following that high-intensity workload, again, we knew they'd be systemically stressed. So we're not going to increase the stress by ingesting carbohydrates. So we would go through this another small period of glycogen depletion. And then just match day minus one, man. The day before the game, we would introduce a, a schedule that probably would put guys on an individual level, depending on who they are, between 120 and 200 grams of carbohydrates on that match day minus one. And if you think about that in comparison to the 400 grams we're recommending in the conventional wisdom, that's a big reduction. And that took time. My first year, we did not introduce, uh, you know, that small of a volume. Uh, it took time. We needed these guys to go through it, feel it. And then, you know, what's funny is automatically they came and started telling us, I feel better and better the less I have. And they were decreasing their match day minus one carbohydrate loads on their own. Uh, you know, our starting point was probably closer to 250 grams. We would allow even some guys to go to 300 if they wanted to. We were like, listen, we've restricted all week. Let's leave them alone and let them have some success here. But slowly over the years, they started to decrease, decrease it on their own. Even on match days. I had certain players on the road or I'd sit next to them. I'd say, listen, I'm worried because this is unprecedented. You know, I don't want to tell you that you don't need carbohydrates to play 90 minutes. And the player just kept telling me, yeah, trust me. I feel fine. You know, I feel better the less I have. And that was a trust thing between me and players. Like sometimes I had to let, I had to let the players expertise and their understanding of their own body take precedent over some of my fears and that was, you know, I felt vulnerable. I knew there was some vulnerability there. But that's the, I think that was necessary to get through this whole four and a half year process that we were, you know, embarking on to get to some sort of an understanding of how this gets applied to a team sport. And by the time we were done, we had a pretty clean schedule. Guys knew, guys knew how to handle multi-game weeks. They knew to hand, handle weeks where it was just Saturday to Saturday games. They, we, you know, we, we had this nice little what we call the carbohydrate periodization schedule, but it was geared towards maintaining fat adaptation, 100%. Like there are massive, there was a massive influence on us understanding the systemic stress benefits of, of only introducing carbohydrates when we needed it. And overall, the, the players were, were fantastic. Uh, what a group of guys to introduce this to. Extremely committed. The trust uh, you know, I never took that for granted because 
they did they did put their careers you know in in our hands at times because of of the types of um, you know uh, to the types of newness that we are bringing to the table is it can be scary sometimes and then you know the off season what I told them was I kept it simple. I, my, my desire would be understand that because your activity level is dropping, like you just have to be aware that carbide ingestion is an issue. But what I said instead was think about what that carbohydrate withdrawal feels like five, six days into preseason. You decide how bad you want that, <laughs> that <laughs> withdrawal to feel. You know? if, you, if you stay with a certain discipline, you're going to get to preseason and five, six days in, you're not going to have to deal with that, you know, sickness, that withdrawal and that sickness that, that inevitably comes with restriction or sudden restriction. And that's mm-hmm. the way I, I thought it was better messaged. Leave them responsible for their own bodies. That way, if they decide to go one way, they're doing it knowing the consequence and it's because they feel they need it mentally. Listen, I need a break and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have my way with things for a little while. And then maybe I choose for the last 10 days before I start preseason, I'm going to start curbing it. Or they might choose not to curb it at all and say, you know, F it, I'll deal with the withdrawal, whatever it is. There's, a, there's an application and a, and a certain individualization you have to allow these players to have. And that long term was kind of how we, we processed it all. But we wanted to stick to what we knew the benefits were going to be, right? One, we knew we were going to be way more aerobically robust than the teams we were playing against. And we felt confident that the decrease in systemic stress was going to help recover in between games, prevent injuries and extend the longevity, in my opinion, of their careers, which, which is, which was massively important to me. All right, folks, Optimal Carnivore reached out to support the show and let you know about a product they are very excited about. Optimal Carnivore recognized that organ meats are some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet but can often be difficult to prepare conveniently and hard to get when eating out or traveling. For this reason, Optimal Carnivore has created grass-fed organ complex and bone marrow complex. They do this by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, freeze-dry the organs, and encapsulate them into a convenient bovine gelatin capsule. They chose New Zealand because it is a pure source, a pristine land with rich soil, lush greenery, and one of the cleanest environments on earth. The products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. The grass-fed organ complex is a unique blend of nine different organs, a powerful combination including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and intestines. The bone marrow complex contains the same components as a home-cooked bone broth perfect for people who are traveling or who do not have the time to make bone broth. All the nutrients and substances that your body uses to build, repair, and maintain your bones, teeth, and connective tissues. In an effort to add even more to these benefits, Optimal Carnivore plants one tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So go visit www.amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Links and the promo code can be found in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. 
I love your description of kind of how the the week plays out in in soccer specifically and things like that because I think that that that's the context that we kind of need to really understand like why we're doing things the way we're doing it and when versus just you know, picking one random day out there, looking at what people are eating and then deciding, right. okay, this is every day for the rest of their life, kind of a mindset. Exactly. And, you know, and, and that's exactly what I'm doing with, with, with my own training and the folks I'm working with, with the endurance side of stuff. So, so it makes sense to me. And I think the interesting thing you said too, that was kind of an aha moment for me as a coach was when I kind of went through the whole process myself and started working with other folks, kind of trying to do a similar approach I'd been, I'd been doing it for a couple of years before I really started even, even talking about it in any real meaningful way uh, with my own coaching clients. And it was like, so I, I had an idea of like, well, here's the pitfalls that we need to look for or look for, look out for. Yeah. And, and also like from, I based a lot of it on my own experience at first because I didn't have right. that kind of like body of like other folks I've worked with just data collected. So for me, like the thing that stuck out of my mind when I first started is I was fortunate enough that I chose to do it on the off season. So I wasn't mm-hmm. really fighting a lot of workouts to try to kind of make that switch flip, so to speak. Um, but what I did notice is when I kind of went through my more strict keto phase and into my structured training, I recognized kind of what you laid out, that there is a time and a place for carbohydrate. But when you position yourself to defend muscle glycogen a lot better with fat than you would on a moderate or high carbohydrate diet, the amount you need to bring back is still relatively low. And like you said, when you have your, um, your kind of pre-match type mm-hmm. carb, carb loads, I mean, you're looking at, you know, ranges into the hundred to maybe 200 grams a day, which right. if you tell that to someone who's following a zero carb diet, yeah, they're going to think, oh, that's a lot of carbohydrates. But you tell that Correct. to any other athlete, certainly a professional athlete, and they'll be like, is that breakfast, lunch, or dinner? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, <laughs> so you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, it gets, it gets interesting when you get into that. And, right. you know, and then I'd have coaching clients from time to time too, who like, they'd be going through the program. They felt so good when they started doing kind of strict keto. It was like, I was almost in a reverse role where instead of trying to explain to this person why they'd want to maybe try a high fat, low carb diet with some periodized carbohydrate into, I'm talking to the strict keto person trying to tell them, here's a spot where you might want to bring your carbs up a little bit just so you right. get it. And every once in a while I'll get someone who won't and they'll still nail the workout and I'm just left. Right. Like, you know, it is what it is. And totally, the, you know, one thing I think, I think it was Finney's cycling study, one of his first ones where he had yeah. like maybe N of four or something like that. Yeah. And if you actually tease out the data in that study and look at the individuals within it, there was like one guy in there that just thrived way higher than the rest of the group did. Yes. So it's like that just when I saw that, I was like, well, this explains so much. It's like if I'm working with someone and we're just banging our heads against the wall using a right. low carb approach, maybe it's not for them. But, you know, maybe I'll have someone who can go much lower carb than I do. Yeah. And make it work. And then you're going to have everything in between. And, and so it really does come down to what I like to talk about is like we need to look at context. Then we need to look at the individual. Um, but one direction I'd like to go with kind of like what what you mentioned was uh, I think there's definitely something to kind of having a group or a team atmosphere with this sort of stuff. Like you, if you're working with another group of people, I mean, it's one thing to see like a few of your workouts suffer. And if those pile up, you get a little more trigger happy about kind of pulling away from a, a strategy that you haven't done before. That's different from what you've seen explained, but we have a whole group of people and you have someone like yourself explaining, 
yeah, your workouts are suffering right now as you're adapting, but that's what we're supposed to expect. We just need to first get back to kind of equilibrium and then from there build on that robustness and actually like see some advantages and some benefits from this. Um, I guess my question with that was how was that path for you when you kind of first started using it? Did you have buy-in from a whole team all at once or was it like working with one person and then that person has some success and then their, their buddies kind of check in and say, Hey, what's going on over here? And they want to get a little more interested when they see the results from someone else. Uh, you know, we, we looked at, I came in at the end of the 2014 season and that gave me a chance just to assess everything. I really didn't need to be very invasive, but it was all geared towards building a plan for how are we going to hit the ground running 2015, not just in nutrition, but in terms of how the whole entire performance platform was going to benefit the players, uh, diet being a big part of it. And when we, if we focus in on our decision for that particular part of it from diet and nutrition, we felt like because I came from the UK and the Premier League, I had the benefit of, I had the player's attention. So that was a, a big positive. Our head coach was also the sporting director. So we didn't run, we didn't have to run a lot of new ideas through several different channels. He was on board. If it's a yes from him, we're moving. And so we knew we could execute things quickly. And that, that was a second caveat. The third was we knew we had a really committed group of players because of the way they adapted and took other new things on board that weren't diet related. We felt, listen, we've got a group where we've got their attention. And then we also felt like we had a staff that understood what we were trying to accomplish. We all the way down to the, the part-timers and, and volunteers, they all needed to be on board because when the going gets tough, the player will look for the one person that will listen and will go get them a bag of Cheetos. They, they want, you know, you can't have any crack in the armor anywhere because it needs to be total commitment from everybody. And if I don't see a guy walking into a lobby with a, with a pizza box, then whoever does see it needs to be in a position to go, what are you doing? Whether it's a player that calls the other player out or another staff member that calls a player out, you need total understanding and commitment from everybody. And that happened. We were on preseason. A player is trying to sneak in <laughs> a small pepperoni pizza, you know, and it was another staff member, not me, that saw them, pulled them aside, called them out and said, just talk me through how this works into what we're trying to accomplish. And that was a big part of it, is the total commitment from everybody. Once we knew that we had that type of staff, that type of group of players, I knew I had some respect and I had their attention. We just decided we're going to introduce this team-wide on our first preseason. We're providing all their meals anyway. It's going to be six weeks long. And if they do decide to go one way or the other and try to sneak out and cheat, we still control 90% of what they're eating. And as long as we message it correctly, as long as we create the excitement over the newness and the advantages could possibly give us. And as long as collectively everybody involved that's an authority position was not only preaching it, but actually doing it themselves, 
that I felt like we were cooking with hot grease. And that's what we were able to do. Like, you know, the, the entire staff did it with them. And I had staff members that dropped 23, 24 pounds in four weeks. You know, they're, and they're like, they're fired up. The, the players went through, <laughs> we got to a, we told them, obviously, they were going to hit a wall and there was going to be this feeling of sickness. Like we, we introduced that. But when it did come, you know, it was for different guys between four and six days, the training quality dropped quite a bit. And there was one pivotal moment where we were in the coach's office. It was just the coaching staff. And the head coach said, listen, are you sure we're doing the right thing? And I immediately answered, yes, we knew this was coming. In my head, I'm thinking, I've got no freaking clue. I've never, <laughs> I, hope, I hope we're doing the right thing. It was so new. I had nothing to really bounce this off of, other than the fact that we knew this was coming, right? Mm -hmm. It was almost assurance. The fact that training was worse, the fact that guys were feeling sick, was assurance that not only were we doing it right, but we're on the right track. Because we if I didn't see it, I wouldn't be sure that they're even fat adapted, right? Like you, you need to see that withdrawal happening to know that I am going, the next step is they're going to start, you know, metabolizing fat. And so it was a sketchy moment. It was that pivotal time when, you know, you're in your spotlights on you and there's a, you have to make a decision and you have to live or die by it. You know, if I say, yes, we're doing the right thing and the whole thing falls apart, you know, then, you know, that's that chance you have to take and be vulnerable at times. But I knew in the basic science, not because there was precedent, but I knew in the basic science that we were going to, we're going to gain benefits from this. And then it just went from strength to strength, week to week. And then all of a sudden we started, you know, hearing players say, listen, I feel good. I'm really starting to feel good. I'm really starting to feel good. And that, that gave us a lot of confidence. And, and when, when it was all said and done, I don't think I had a hundred percent compliance, Zach, you know, I'm not, I'm not naive. Um, I think we fluctuated throughout that whole, if I was to evaluate the whole four year period where we were using carbohydrate periodization, I'd say we flexed anywhere between 75 and 90% compliance based on personnel that came in, based on the individuals themselves, based on the ebb and flow uh, of, of a player's career and, and how the emotional uh, attachments, whether they're in the team, not in the team, all that affects how they, how they behave on and off the field. I would say we flexed between that, you know, 75, 90% compliance. And then uh, in the end, I feel like we educated a lot of players. Um, that process made people more healthy, including staff. Uh, and I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing about the way we handled it, man. I was really, really happy with it. But I think that's the that's the pivotal moment to decide how you're going to handle it. Is it a group? Is it an individual? I think it comes down to the resources that are around you, the environment you've created. What's the culture like? There's many cultures. I never would have implemented it this way. No chance. It would have been an absolute disaster and a failure, but it comes down to the context of the people that are involved. And that really drove the decisions to be as aggressive as we were to introduce this as quickly as we did. But Preseason felt like the right time to do it because we were with them. We're together for six weeks. We control the food. That seemed like the best time to do it. And it paid off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really interesting. And I think like it's, it should be like, I think if someone's listening to this and they're, they're deciding like, well, what do I want to take away from this? I think at, at the very least, I would hope they take away that like, this is something that 
the timing of implementation and then the way you kind of assess some of those early stages are so important because when I think of when I switched, I mean, I switched in the off season. I had, I had the flexibility of not running at all if I wanted it. You know, I went out for some easy runs during because I felt good. I followed the same program that I would when I was high carb where if I feel like running, I can run in the off season. But if I don't, I stop as soon as I don't feel like it anymore. And it's got to be completely kind of just natural, desirable. I can't have any forcing and anything like that. And that's when I implemented Had I tried to do it, though, in the middle of a season, my guess is I would have, you know, felt miserable for like three or four weeks at least especially when I was trying to do anything above aerobic threshold and um, probably ended up bailing on it and just walked away thinking, yeah, this just doesn't work for my lifestyle. This doesn't work for my sport. Um, fortunately, I put it in the right time and I noted some benefits early enough where it kept me motivated to kind of keep pushing, even though um, I guess I was probably kind of in the same boat as you is like, I didn't necessarily have any great like studies at the time to point to that would say like, I'm doing the right thing, but it was like, it was important in that like, I, th- I see a lot of people kind of do it the other way or try it out. They'll see a story of so-and-so doing it and having success and then they'll try to implement it, you know, week eight of a 24 week buildup for their key race yeah. or something like that. And it's just like, I just cringe when I see that sometimes I'm like, Oh, you know, you're going to, this is, then they're going to have a bad experience and it's going to, you know, it's going to end up positioning as this is just yeah. a bad approach for everyone because <clears throat> so-and-so didn't work. And um, so I think that's important. Um, I think it's awesome too that your staff got into it. Cause I think like, yeah, you, you know, as someone who's been coached a lot, when I first got into the sport, you know, you look at those, those individuals and the question does come up like, well, why is this person not practicing what they preach if it works so yeah, well? And totally. It was sports. Sometimes you can get away with, well, I'm living a different lifestyle than you. I'm just telling you what to do, but it's right. you're still going to have a better outcome. I think if everyone who's, who's programming is bought in as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've been, and as, I'm not training at the volume they're training. Um, you know, I've been, I've been pretty much ketogenic for probably four, five, six, maybe longer, maybe six or seven years now at this point. And it'll, it'll ebb and flow. Like I, I probably go in and out of it for months at a time. Uh, but I'm never, ever, um, you know, systemically in stress. You know, that's the big thing that uh, has anchored me in, you know, in low carbohydrate strategies is just understanding the longevity of what's taking place in my body. So that that's been the, that's been the, the thing that keeps me connected to it for so long. But the, the, I think the key element to think about, you know, if you're a coach, either thinking about implementing the strategy with an athlete, or if you're an athlete thinking about bringing on yourself is you need time for the individualization adjustment because no, no matter how we slice this, eventually the person's individual gut biome is going to drive how and how their diet contributes to their health. And I think that's where this all going to go eventually is the, the, the more, the better we understand the gut and the metabolic processes that are happening there and the way in which the gut influences the entire body we're going to see that even this, you know, fanatical commitment to ketogenic diets is not right for everybody. Uh, and, and it, that needs to be addressed also. And as a, as a, as I would work through a period of time as an athlete, I would want to know that I could be extreme and the effects it would have on my training would not affect my ability to compete 
during those pivotal competition moments in my training year. I would want to know that I have time to feel what it felt like one way, feel what it felt like another way, and learn and fall into this area of, of high performance. Because we don't have a, uh, you know, a blood test. You know, we, we don't have a, a Ancestry.com type of, of, you know, diet and nutrition uh, service out there where we can submit a DNA test and it comes back and tells us accurate information about what's the ideal level of carbohydrates we should have in our body based on our gut. I think right now we have information that comes back to us on DNA tests. And I think it's spotty. Uh, I don't, I don't feel like it's got the, it's not rooted in the physiological elements within the body that truly tell me what my gut wants. And I think that's going to, I think eventually it will obviously tap into it and we'll have it as, uh, as readily available to us as information that's going to help guide how we prescribe nutrition and diet to our, to our athletes and to ourselves. But I think those are the pivotal decision makers. Where am I at in my com- competitive year? And plan out when you want to experiment with it and make sure that that period has enough time for you to adapt to the individual adjustments that are going to be necessary. And I think as a coach, um, you know, you have to leave, you have to leave space for the player to interpret what's happening. And uh, I felt like we did that really well in the way we approached it in my time in different clubs where we introduced this, because when you get to those pivotal moments where it's like, okay, we actually want to bring in a certain amount of, uh, you know, volume of carbohydrates here. The, the player should be able to, through experience, decide what that is, not us. And I had, I had individual players who restricted, super disciplined during the week, but on match day, they wanted 300, 400 grams. That's how I feel good. Other players just couldn't digest that much food anymore. Like they, they, they felt way too heavy in their gut and they knew, all right, my individual adjustment for me to feel awesome is I need this, 120, 150, 100, whatever it is. Uh, and, and that process as a coach or athlete is important. Give yourself the time during these, this training period to, have, uh, to make your individual adjustments based on, on what you're feeling. And then two, as a coach, make sure that you're leaving space for the athlete to uh, fine tune the process based on what they're feeling. All right, everyone. This episode is supported by a company named Elemental Labs and their product, Element Recharge, which is spelt capital L-M-N-T. And it is a tasty electrolyte blend that replaces vital electrolytes without the sugars and questionable ingredients that are found in traditional sports drink. Each serving, you get 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Folks who follow a high-fat, low-carb diet sometimes find that they need to step up their hydration and electro game. Personally, I realized this exact thing when I went from a high-carbohydrate diet to a high-fat, low-carb diet back in 2011 and especially when I was being active in the outdoors. Rob Wolf also realized this when he started getting into one of his passions, jiu-jitsu. 
He felt that the sport left him feeling like something just wasn't quite perfect, and after some problem solving, discovered that he just needed more electrolytes, specifically more sodium. So to target this, Rob partnered up with his friends at Keto Gains and created Elements to ensure that they had a product that combines the perfect ratio of electrolytes without a big dose of sugar. So Element comes in easy to use single serving packets that you can simply pour into a glass of water, stir and enjoy. So it's perfect to bring with you wherever you're gonna go. Uh, with the summer months in full swing is a perfect time to dial in your hydration and enjoy some of the great outdoors. So head over to drinkelement.com that's drinklmnt.com to check out more of their products. Link and info can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. That makes so much sense. I think it, uh, it's a, it's a, it'd be a hopeful message if I were one of your athletes to hear that you're going to individualize things to that degree. Yeah. I think that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty cool setup. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask was, did you guys do or have you, I should say, maybe done ever any like sort of testing throughout this process as you get a team on board to look at just like where their like their peak fat oxidation rates have changed or anything like that? Do you guys use any metrics like that to gauge where they are along the process or to reaffirm to them that things are happening the way you'd like to see them happen? We did not. We didn't. Uh, the main reason why is two is twofold one it it was just astronomically expensive uh, mm -hmm. to be able to do that team-wide um, and the second is that the, uh, the the schedule is so intense uh, that testing is a very efficient decision when when you're a performance coach you have to decide what tests am I going to do that give me the most information for me to be able to execute and get players performing at a really high level. And we felt like the, the, the evidence is usually visible through the outward, through the output that you're seeing and through the changes that take place in some objective tests, but mostly subjective as well. You know, if, if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm seeing it, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding in terms of distance covered. You know, if I'm seeing that we're, we're, we're seeing distances increase team-wide and on an individual level, we're hearing uh, uh, responses from players about just how they feel and being surprised. I should be more sore today and I'm not, you know, those are things where we feel like, all right, we're on to something here. Um, and then the, the only other thing we did was there were a few guys that, uh, said, listen, I feel so good restricted that I want to try to go into ketosis. And there's two players that wanted to do that. So we did do some ketone testing with a couple of guys. And it was interesting. What we realized is uh, it's a completely different animal from one person to the next. Uh, you know, we had a guy that was probably close to 70 grams a day and he was in ketosis. And then we had a guy that was close to 30 grams a day and he was nowhere close. So based on ketone testing. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it gave us an idea. It just affirmed that this is all so individual that sometimes the, without, you know, without spending the dollars on very specific tests, sometimes you, you have to rely on the subjective information that you're getting uh, and trust it. You've got to put a lot of faith in it and then, and, and hope that it's going to guide you one way or the other in either making changes or continuing uh, on a current pathway. So the, the, it, it, it has, there's a space for it. 
Um, I think using this particular strategy is so limited in team sports right now. I don't feel like anybody is introducing or working on efficient ways of, of, of gaining information about, um, you know, the state of fat adaptation or the, you know, the concentration of ketones in the blood because there's just not a big demand for it in team sports. I can only think of a handful of teams uh, that I've come into contact throughout the years of individuals who had tried something similar. There was a team in Norway that had actually done it before I did and had won championships. Um, Darren Burgess, who's an Australian uh, performance director, has experimented with it pretty significantly, both in 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 soccer and in um, Australian rules football. Uh, had a lot of success with it. And then uh, you know the, the All Blacks are are a very uh, I think they're probably the most popular uh, example of teams that are using carbohydrate periodization strategies and, and obviously excelling uh, at, a, at an unbelievable level uh, in, in winning World Cups and, and winning international competitions. So I think there's, it's spotty. There's not a ton of people doing it. And I, and I don't think there's any value for anybody as a company to come up with ways of measuring it. And that's probably what's missing right now in team sports. I, I mean, globally, there's a, there's a huge need from a health perspective mm-hmm. to just turn conventional wisdom on its head. And you're fighting the good fight. Sean's fighting the good fight. Uh, and we're just all realizing uh, how big of a battle it's going to be. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not limited to just the general population. I mean, it's significant in the sporting world as well. Um, you know, and I've, I've had my, my share of critics and, and uh, mudslinging that's taken place through, through the years, just, just based on uh, whether it be just the, uh, sometimes the individual uh, insecurity of saying, man, I'm not doing this, maybe I should be, but I'm afraid to, does, does bring some really interesting behaviors to the surface. <laughs> from people that I thought, you know, were, were close colleagues. So it, it, but that's the battle, man. That's where we're at. And overall, I think the, we need to eventually get there, not just for performance reasons, Zach, but you know, the, the overall health of globally, the overall health of the human race is at risk here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if you, you said it, said it, perfectly I think like a lot of times you will get pushback from folks who kind of have that first that first instinct of I was a hundred percent sure I was doing things the right way and now you're telling me I'm not and it's it's that's scary yeah. because not only do you want to you don't want to get into this this uh or no one wants to be in this position where they're second guessing all their decisions and wondering if they just wasted a bunch of time or could have done better or, you know that sort of a mindset it can and, and that can sometimes be the initial instinct or initial impression that someone would maybe get but um i think uh you know the other interesting thing like i think you're you're right with going with like kind of some of these these signs rather than doing anything super i mean the testing would be cool just to have the numbers i think totally like totally um, or something something to point to i guess but uh, yeah at the end of the day you know performance is the metric you're you're measuring like that's what's yeah. gonna win games and that's what's gonna sign contracts and that sort of stuff so mm-hmm. um you know and the, the story i always have with it in terms of like fat oxidation rates and things like that is like i mean i've had fat oxidation rate tests done in the past where my 
ketone millimoles were like between 0.4 and 0.7, which is just mm-hmm. barely in ketosis by like a blood ketone metric. But I was putting out like above 1.5 grams per minute, my peak fat oxidation rate, which is would be huh. off the charts in any physiology book before the faster study, essentially. Right. So, yeah, correct. So it's like you can have those scenarios where maybe someone is uh, producing high levels of blood ketones or low levels of blood ketones, but they're, you know, they're both, I think, plenty, I guess what we would call fat adapted, at least fat adapted enough for their performance. Uh, correct. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's what I told people in general was, listen, because keto, keto, ketogenics is such a lightning bolt of a word, uh, they want to gravitate towards that immediately. And I said, listen, I never said we're on a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody just take a minute, calm down. You know, I want my athletes to be fat adapted. I didn't say anything about wanting them to be in ketosis. And you're touching on that right now. It's the output. I want to see the output. I want to see the benefits of being able to oxidize fat. And that's all I care about. That's the, this process was really about getting to that point. And I felt like the, you know, the, the emphasis went elsewhere. You know, it was always about, it was always about health that eventually went to cholesterol, which is a conversation. I, you know, it just, I want to bash my head against the wall every time I have to have that conversation. But the, in the end, it was about, you know, let's, let's stop worrying about the, the semantics here that, you know, we're really talking about, uh, you know, the, how to improve human performance, not just so I can win trophies, but so I can be healthy so I can live longer. And I don't think, I think that falls to the cracks quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to, to ask you about too, was when I was watching your presentation at, I think it was Volick's conference. Um, you were talking about some of the, some of the data you did collect, which um, I thought was interesting as much as anything, just in terms of just getting the feedback from your players in terms of like, uh, you know, time spent on field, pre and post uh, conversion and things like like recovery time, which is going to be somewhat subjective. You're based on, I mean, not the time on field. That's pretty uh, direct. Like you can Mm -hmm. get that down to the second if you want it. Um, But just like, you know, the things that are maybe a little more anecdotal or interesting too, just like, you know, players reporting less soreness after matches and things like that, which is an interesting one to me that I hope we get some information on at some point, because that's the one that always seems to come back with everyone that I talk to within the ultra marathon community that does a high fat, low carb diet is they're just blown away by kind of the next day. They're not waddling downstairs backwards or something like that where, yeah. or you can do an air squat when the day after a race, historically, you can't even bend your knees barely much less, you know, would have that kind of range of motion. So mm-hmm. do you want to, if, if you can recall from your presentation, I don't want to make you dig too deep into the back of your mind or have to dig up any of your notes or anything like that. But <laughs> If you, if you have it on the top of your head, you want to talk a little bit about just kind of some of those, those reportings that you have from your teens? Yeah. I, and, and I, I have them at the forefront of my head, so don't worry. I'm good. <laughs> For the most part, uh, the, the bummer about it is everything we collected, anyone can say, yeah, but that might be because of your training. You know, that might be because, you know, and obviously I knew that. I still know that because I don't have the level of invasive testing like we spoke about earlier from a a fat oxidation level. But what we did find was in a, you know, in a, 
in a four year period, based on the information we had, uh, three out of those four years, we led the league in distance, average distance covered per match, both total distance and high speed distance. And that's a you know, significant marker. You know, you could say, well, maybe you train better than everybody else. And totally, I get it. But deep down, you know that um, you can train all you want. You can significantly decrease performance if, you're, if your food isn't in line with your training. But that was probably the bigger marker. And, and that happened e even in the very first year that we introduced it. Didn't take time. Uh, you know, we didn't need to build up some sort of, um, you know, metabolic ability before that took place. Uh, we, we were leading the league significantly. And then, you know, injury-wise, we were, you know, it, there was three out of our four years there that our percentage of games missed due to injury was at or below four and a half percent. And if you stay below eight, nine or eight percent, um, it significantly improves your chances of making the playoffs. And we were below four and a half percent, three out of those four years. And the year we were above it, we were at like nine. So, and that was an off year in many different regards. But for, for, the, for the majority of this metrics that we looked at that were measurable, you know, we knew that collectively we were making good decisions. Um, the, the other interesting one was we always reported, you know, um, subjective levels of, of soreness the, day, the first day back to training after matches. Because sometimes we would be, a lot of times we'd be off on the Sunday if we played on Saturday. So Monday morning, you know, we collectively looked at the year before I came and then the years following, what was the average reported uh, feeling of soreness out of 10 on that first day back. And you know, we were somewhere around six out of 10, seven out of 10 before we got here. And then we dropped as low as four and a half out of 10 when we started getting into the meat of, of our time there um, around 2017, 2018 was our final season. And then in that stretch, you know, out of the, out of that four years, we made the playoffs three times. Uh, we were in the Eastern conference final twice. Uh, one of those years we went to MLS cup final. Unfortunately, we lost to Portland 2015 in MLS cup final. And we were, so we were seeing success on the field in playoff games. Um, mul in multiple occasions, we would be playing. Uh, we play into scenarios where we have to go into extra time periods. There's two, two years, both 2017, 2018, our first playoff series first against Atlanta in 2017 went to, uh, extra time where we had to play 120 minutes instead of 90. And then we won on penalties in 2017. We outran our opponent during the regular period. We outran our opponent in the extra time periods and we won the game the following year uh, before I move on actually. And then in very short turnaround in 2017, we had to play another playoff game. And the first year it was on two days rest. And we ended up playing a team that didn't play midweek like we did. So they had three or four more days of rest than we did. And we played them over a 90 minute. We outran them over 90 minutes and we won that game. And there was, there was seven starters in the second game that played in the extra time game 72 hours earlier. 
we knew that we were onto something. Now, collectively, I'd be naive to say we didn't feel like our training regiments, our screening regiments, our sports science and recovery strategies are a part of that. We know that. But we're in a game playing 120 minutes on a nutritional strategy that people are saying won't provide success. And we're outrunning teams uh, the, in, you know, in situations where most people are saying we should be depleted and running out of energy. And that's not happening. Following year in 18, we did the same thing. We played DC United in a play-in game. It went 120 minutes. We outran them in regular time. We outran them in extra time and we won the game on penalties. Four days later, we had to play another game on short rest. Again, six to seven starters started again in that game. We outran them and we won the game. So it, overall, there's this, not only a performance thing we're seeing in games, but we're seeing this recovery process taking place as well. And those are the statistics that gave us confidence. Do they specifically tease out what's happening from a nutritional standpoint? No. You know, we know we, knew we were short on that. We don't have that specific information. But collectively, based on conventional wisdom, we should be falling flat on our face with no energy before 90 minutes is even up based on what people are telling us. And I tell, I tell people in my presentations all the time, even if, even if the statistics didn't show that we were outrunning people, even if it showed zero increase between the years where I wasn't there and the years I was there, isn't that a win for low carbohydrate strategies? Because the, the complaint was it can't be done. So even if it didn't, even if we didn't gain any more distance, physical output, but we decreased the time it takes to recover, we improved their systemic health, we decreased injuries. Isn't all of that a win? You know, and that's where I sometimes in in describing this to other people, the perspective is always I'm I'm always facing people who immediately within the first minute are waiting for me to say something so they can prove me wrong. I'm not trying to prove anybody wrong or right, but I am trying to introduce the fact that there are, there should be significant questions about what we consider, you know, the conventional way of doing things at the moment. And I think that's, that's where a lot of these metrics help Zach. They're not specific to the process in, in actually saying metabolically, yes, you're different now than you were before, but the metrics were clear about how we're performing and whether we're having negative effects or positive effects, you know, accumulatively. And I think that's where a lot of our data was beneficial. Yeah, no, I would 100% agree that even if it comes across as a net neutral across the board when you weigh in all the variables, that's a huge win in the sense that now you can, at worst, come to the table with two options. So like, right. the one I, I've said this a few times in the podcast, so listeners are like, geez, Zach, you're going on about this again. But like, <laughs> I always say like, when I, you know, when I was teaching, when I had success with a student, it was almost always when I was able to give them multiple options that I knew all were workable with the right approach. Yeah, And yeah. they got to pick the one and take that ownership and run with it. That was yeah. always the biggest win. So I think like, even if, even if what you find out is that, okay, it's not an improvement, but it's not a deficit. It's just another way to do this the right way. Now we have two, very, two ways to go about it. You have one more option for someone. And, and think, of the, think of the folks who maybe, for whatever reason, aren't kind of in that belly of the, of the bell curve and need a different or an alternative option. 
then, then you, then you want that, that board of different things to pick from so that they can find what's going to work best for them as the mm -hmm. level versus what's working for their teammates or on average. Yeah. 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 And I think the thing to touch on Zach is that then the whole process becomes more sustainable mm -hmm. and the, the you a big mistake would be to not be thinking about the sustainability of your idea before you even implement the idea. That's a, that's a big mistake. And we, we, we did a good job of zigzagging because we didn't do that the first year. I didn't pay enough attention to the sustainability. I knew preseason is going to end at some point and then we're going to come back to market and these players are eventually going to go home and they have to produce this food for themselves. And I didn't think of that soon enough. And as we worked our way through the, our time together, what I realized is you have, to, you have to leverage as many resources as you can for the players. You have to teach them. You have to teach them how to cook. You have to teach them how to shop. And then at the end of the day, you also have to maybe give them resources to fill the gaps that you know they're not going to be able to fill themselves. Maybe they just don't cook well. Maybe, you know, they, when, they, when they shop, they have a certain amount of temptation, ignorance, whatever you want to call it. So we leveraged a lot of resources. One, I had Dr. Volek 10 minutes for me, which is a huge benefit to be able to just access really intelligent people. And then, um, the, there was, you know, the, the sustainability came from being able to provide food for these guys when they needed it. If a guy wants to order the food, well, what's the problem? You know, if it's sustainable and it works, and we partnered with Pangea Keto, which is a fantastic company that is right here in Ohio, and we started giving the players access to the, to the availability of food where they didn't have to think about it. That was the beautiful thing. I told them, guys, if you order it, eat it, and you don't have to worry about it. And that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted. And Pangea Keto helped a lot in that regard. We've, we've utilized strategies like that with certain players on the national team as well who have, who have different you know, blood-based metabolic disorders. And again, utilizing resources like them is, is key because if you introduce something great and you know it's beneficial and then it just falls away because of the lack of attention to sustainability. And man, you miss, you miss a huge opportunity. And I think that was something we were able to take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you touched on something that I found really interesting since I started kind of my journey into high fat, low carb at the end of 2011. So I've been, been at it for, for coming up on 10 years. And mm. when I first got into it, like they didn't have a whole lot of the kind of like the keto friendly, like, like products out there that you could get. And, you know, I think that's kind of a polarizing topic within the community where some folks are like, you know, the reason it was one of the reasons it was so effective in the past is it kind of forced you into this, this, this category of now I have to prepare my own food, which just made you a little more mindful, which totally, is, but, but then the other part of it is this piece of the puzzle that we've kind of, I think touched on multiple times today is that, uh, if there's a lot of hurdles and pitfalls along the way, you're going to have a lot more casualties when people are trying to kind of troubleshoot this on their own, especially. Mm -hmm. and, and most people probably are. I mean, they might be online following some people or listening to podcasts and things like that. But, uh, you know, having, having the options to say like, 
you know, I want this, I want a cookie or a snack or something that and actually be able to grab one that's going to fit in the framework of the macronutrients you're trying to target is a huge advantage versus, you know, just basically having to say cold turkey, I guess, is maybe the way to describe it. So I think that is an interesting development that I've seen over the last, like, almost 10 years from when I started is just the, the, the breadth of different options that you have that are targeted towards, you know, folks who are more interested in kind of keeping their carbs low and their fats moderate or high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if you think about it too, like, you know, the whole, there was, there was a lot of pushback. Uh, well, why are we providing this for them? They need to learn how to cook for themselves and you learn how to cook for themselves. And I thought, listen, guys, if you had four kids and you wanted to eat a certain way, you've all been in the kitchen when it's time to prepare food for six people. They, you are not, you can't guarantee me that your two-year-old is going to eat Brussels sprouts with bacon, right? Your kids have to eat. And so does your wife. So does your husband. So does your partner. And in the end, you want to create strategies for people to be successful. And the biggest thing I found it was for my married guys, because they're like, you know, I want to eat this way but it doesn't mean my whole family wants to eat this way. And it doesn't mean I can, I, I need to be able to make, you know, chopped up hot dogs and macaroni and cheese for the kids. And then a nice meal for my wife. And then I want to take this thing I got from Pangea keto, put it in the oven. And in 15 minutes, I want to eat my food. And some of it is just about strategies to allow people to be successful in life. This isn't and that's that's where these different resources become handy. And again, it's, it's about the sustainability of it all because eventually I'm just going to be like, you know what? I'll just have the hot dogs and the mac and cheese, yeah. right? You, yeah, you have mm-hmm. to eat. At some point you have to eat. And that's real life. That's real life. And that's what you're trying to do is create strategies for people to be successful in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, if not, I think even when you just look at like the success rate in the general populace with some of these like alternative nutrition approaches, you see it is pretty bleak. So I think like the more resources, the better in terms of making something sustainable and continuing to work for folks is good. But you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's funny because I had, uh, I was on a, another podcast a couple of weeks ago and uh, one of the questions I was asked was, like, well, what food group would you use to cheat if you're going to cheat on your you know, high fat, low carb approach? Right. And I was thinking about it. I kind of got tripped up because I was trying to think of something that they don't actually make an alternative for anymore. And I, I ended up saying pizza, which was a kind of a ridiculous thing. So I, I literally have right. a frozen pizza in the freezer right now that is made from cauliflower because I could have it ready right. in 15 minutes. I wouldn't right. be eating at all. It's just, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's funny yeah. how that works. <laughs> yeah. No, and listen, I think everybody needs, I don't know. It, it, I found, I thought the interesting thing was that, the players needed to know they could cheat, you know? And I, I think the one thing I never got to was why do I not feel like I need to cheat? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have any desire. It's not like I'm dying to have something other than this or that I feel like this whole thing is just so stressful. I need a break from it. I've never felt that way. And I, I think it's because there's a, such a, uh, a very real understanding for me about my health, you know, that, and I think that is the reason why I never feel any need to have to go any other way. Right. You know, I, I like the food I eat. I don't, I don't need to cheat. I don't need to even use that word, but it's because I have a different 
perspective. I'm looking at it from a different pair of glasses, you know, and maybe that's the key. Maybe the key is what are we teaching and what are we prioritizing? And if they can root themselves in a different way of looking at it, then, you know, the word just changes. I've got, you know, athletes who are diabetics and insulin dependent diabetics. And they said, it's easy. I look at a glass of orange juice and my perspective is that son of a bitch will kill me. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's all of a sudden like cheating is, has a totally, there's a different perspective on it all. Right. It's a paradigm shift. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think, you know, it's a new dimension. We, you kind of, you now live in a, in a different dimension and you see things differently yeah, and everything is about perspective. It's your own reality at times, right? And, and then the tough piece would be changing that reality and giving them a different pair of glasses to see the world. In. And it's a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's a, a really cool way to look at it. And I think it's, it just, it, it just adds to the, adds to the conversation. But um, yeah, Steve, I don't want to hold you up too long. So you've been really generous with your time. Um, if you have anything else you want to chat about, we certainly can. But otherwise, I think might have to have you back on down the road to go over some stuff uh, maybe after the next season if you have any any new or interesting things to share. Yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed it. I, it took a while for us to connect, man, but I I will, you know, I never I never lost sight of, of of trying to ping you and get this thing to happen because uh, <laughs> no, it's great. I've obviously and and I haven't had a chance, but you know you're uh, you're setting world records, man. So congratulations on everything on, in that that's happened in your life since we started this process of trying to connect. And super cool to see you know the success that that um, you know that that you're having, and to be a part of what I think is your efforts to try to really provide useful information for people to to excel is great. Uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, thanks for the kind words. And if you have anywhere you want our listeners to be able to know, they can go and find you, social media, websites, that sort of things. Feel free to share that now. And I'll also can throw it in the show notes too. So people can click over to it easily. Yeah. I'm, I'm, the easiest way is uh, on, on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn pretty quickly. Just search my name and you'll, you'll be, you'll find me pretty it, my last name is not shared by a lot of other people. So I think you'll find me pretty quickly. And then on Twitter at Steve Tashjian on Twitter, you'll be able to find me there. Perfect. Awesome. Steve. Well, thanks again for coming on and uh, I'll let you know when this one goes up, but I'm looking forward to getting this one out to listeners. That's great, man. Thanks Zach. Tell Sean I said hello, please. And I, I you know, I'm looking forward to meeting him one of these days. Perfect. Will do. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.